Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. My guest today is Matt Martin, who is the co-founder and CEO of Clockwise, a service that manages your calendar for you so that you have more dedicated focus time in your life. In addition to being an entrepreneur, Matt is also an attorney and a Minnesotan who has provided political analysis for various publications. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Matt. It's so nice to be talking to you. It is fantastic to be talking to you, Yvonne, and it's uh, really fun to be on a Minnesota-centered podcast. This takes me back and uh, I am excited to be here. It's lovely to have you on. Tell me about how amazing the weather is in California, would you? Because you're out there. <laughs> you know, it is a it is a very typical San Francisco day, which means that the fog has rolled in, and it's a, it's just slightly chilly. It's kind of like light sweater weather, which is about par for the course over here. So I found out something that I didn't realize was a thing this week. Uh, gray May and Gloom June, I think. Do you know about this? This is like California terminology for May and June. I I actually have not heard about that, Ivan. Um, although having lived here for a number of years now, I can definitely pattern match off of both those statements <laughs> being true. Yeah, I I didn't know it was a thing. It, like I I guess I just thought it was always sunny out in California. It is not always summer, and and it it is not always warm, and uh, you know the. The kind of apocryphal quote is, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Much debated about whether Mark Twain actually said that, but it is true. It is like it is remarkable how August can be the coldest month of the year here, just the way that the fog can play. Okay, clearly people uh, like Mark Twain have never spent 30 degree below in Minnesota in the middle of winter if that's the coldest they ever got. <laughs> I know. We both we both know right. that's not even close to true, right. but it's a nice quote. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, let's go back a little to where you grew up, which I understand is somewhere in Minnesota and where you went to school and so tell me about that. tell me about that. Yeah, so I was born at the Fairview Hospital, um, kind of in this, you know, around Southdale in Edina. Uh, and I, my first home was in Bloomington. Uh, so I grew up in Bloomington until I was five. Uh, both my parents are from the Twin Cities, and my dad actually uh, is, he grew up not too far from that home. We moved out to the western suburbs uh, when I was around five years old. Uh, moved out to Medina, Minnesota, um, kind of right on the edge of Plymouth. And that is where I grew up um, all through elementary school, middle school, uh, and my parents still live there today. I moved out to the East Coast when I went to college, but um, also came back to Minnesota uh, after college. And you went to school to one school for your whole education before you went to college, a school called the Blake School. That is correct. Yep, I am, uh, for better or worse, and I'm sure that there are many opinions out there in the audience on the Blake School, but um, I do have to say I, I uh, feel lucky to have gone there and um, really enjoyed my education there, enjoyed my time there, and spent uh, all the way from first grade to 12th grade uh, at the Blake School. So you're what they call a lifer, right? That's right. Well, now, Yvonne, this is, uh, this is actually much debated. Um, so... The 
Funny enough, uh, I didn't go to kindergarten at Blake, oh. and uh, <laughs> and that one miss. Now, now here's the here's here's my argument. I didn't go to kindergarten anywhere. I I went to Blake, and they put me into first grade. So I think I'm a lifer, but um, the hardcore among us might disagree. Okay, I totally can see that. Yes, I think I would agree with your logic. If you didn't go to school anywhere, and you started at Blake as your first, and you didn't need to go to kindergarten, then I would qualify you as a as a lifer, for sure. That's right. And my my wife reminds me all the time that I really missed out on kindergarten because I never learned how to share, and that haunts <laughs> me to this day. So. So apart from not learning how to share at the Blake School, um, how do you think it actually did prepare you for for college and for your life now and what you're doing now? I think that one of the things that it, it, I really truly find myself to be lucky in life uh, in, in, in myriad ways, but as it comes to Blake is I, I had excellent teachers. Uh, it's not without exception. Um, there are there's some areas of Blake's overall kind of academic portfolio that I think are not as strong as others. Um, but the teachers that I had there, uh, were really pretty amazing. Um, and I'll go all the way back to my first grade computer teacher. We had a computer lab in first grade for me, this was in 1991. So, I mean, you know, not, not uh, a tremendous time ago, but at that time, not all elementary schools had computers yeah. available to them, but we did. Yeah. And I had a computer teacher called Miss Kelly, and she really, she saw that I liked computers, that I gravitated towards it, and really um, took me under her wing. And I spent first through fifth grade with her, and I loved going to the computer room. I loved picking up HyperCard. Um, <laughs> you know, it, yeah, right? I mean, right. like, HyperCard, I still remember just, like, it It turned, it, it a light bulb lit up in my head, you know, what you could do there. And I actually ended up working for her over a summer, working with her in the computer lab as she um, uh, headed up IT overall at Blake eventually. Um, and so that was a big influence on me. And I think that the the second part of it that I would note is really great teachers know how to get their students excited. Mm. You know, they know how to they know how to pull them into not just the subject, but uh, the curiosity to learning about. Um, what their world is like to learning about how they can apply their interests to the world around them. And um, as trite as it is, uh, you know, it is is kind of a trite phrase. It, it really does start a lifelong process of learning. Yeah. And for yeah. me, I, I'm a very curious person. I love to learn. I still love to learn today. And um, it brought me through a couple twists and turns in my career so far. But I love uh, starting a company partially because so much of my job is learning new things and learning how to function in new areas that I've never had exposure to. And so I think that that process started early with me and I'm really grateful for it. Do you feel like you thought you would be in computers when you first had that first grade class with Miss Kelly? Did you know that's what you wanted to kind of pursue or did you want to be something else when you grew up? I did not. And, you know, I'm curious, Ivana, what this was like for you because for me at that age... Um, in Minnesota, the role models that I had weren't computer centric, mm. like computers felt to me like a fun toy almost, you know, it felt like something that I would go to that was just really cool and like was a side interest. Um, and I never saw the career path, you know, because there weren't, I had no software engineers in my life. I had no creators. 
Yeah, I, I think I feel the same way. Like, I didn't have any role models either, but granted, I was programming computers a little sooner than you were, like, maybe uh, five or six years. So it was the early to mid-80s when I got started. Obviously, no internet, uh, small ZX Spectrum 48K. I also saw it as a, as a hobby, I think. I You know, there weren't so many... There weren't any software engineers. Like, I did not study any software engineering or any computer science classes in school or in college. So everything that I've learned has been for my own benefit because I was interested in it. Um, it'd be interesting to know how that compares with now because there's so many courses right now and as early as kindergarten. Yeah, and I think I think for me, the I've always been a pretty ambitious person and for better or worse, and there are, I, I think there are real downsides to this. And so I don't think that I had the courage um, when I was in high school or even college to pursue something just because I was interested in in it and pulled into it, or I might have had a different career path. It was for me, the lack of understanding and the lack of connection between that interest and a career path that I could grow into. And so I think these days, for again, for better or worse, uh, there are a lot of examples of people who have uh, really had uh, very interesting, compelling careers in computer science, in mm -hmm. building software that pattern matching today, I think I probably would have gone into software much earlier. Yeah, I think I would have too. But you you spent, um, you know, the standard number of what, two or three years at Blake in the high school um, doing some college counseling. And I'm sure you had a number of schools that you were applying to, but you ended up going to Dartmouth and you ended up studying government. Tell me about how that happened, how you ended up in government studies. Uh, well, that one is interesting. So the I wouldn't say that it was deliberate. Um, I, like so many other people who go to college, you go to college and then you're expected to make a choice about what your major is, mm -hmm. and I had no clue. Mm -hmm. I was actually debating a little bit about computer science, about economics. And that one for me was really just an interest level. I've always been fascinated about how people organize themselves and the capacity for large social level change through systems of government, which which for me is really about collective action. You know, how do we get together as a group of people and choose how we're going to shape our society and how we're going to shape the rules of society? Um, I find that endlessly interesting. It's an intersection between um, history and uh, public policy and uh, kind of our aspirations as a people. And so I just find the narratives and the stories and the history there to be so rich and interesting that it pulled me in. Did you know what your career path would be? No, I did not. And uh, another thing that happened in a, at a similar point in time is that in high school, I had gotten very interested in Minnesota politics. For me at the time, and this has changed a little bit, uh, and we could probably spend a whole podcast on this. We could probably spend a whole podcast series on this, but uh, Minnesota had always had this very kind of pragmatic, progressive strain of politics. It wasn't, I wouldn't call it highly, highly liberal, although there are certainly uh, strands of that. I mean, there's strands of everything. It's a large state. But it was centered around, we can get together and we can get stuff done. Mm -hmm. Like if we put our heads together, we can make this better for everyone. I think it, you know, is rooted in a little bit of a Scandinavian tradition. Um, and so you see weird things like the Democratic Farmer Labor Party and the DFL instead of the standard Democratic Party. And I really, I, I love that. Like I love the 
I love the coming together to make things better for everyone. Um, you know, Paul Wellstone saying, we all do better when we all do better. And that spirit of being able to come together and make things better for everyone, I, I really, it motivated me, inspired me. And so when I went to college, I, I did find that Minnesota, in some ways, leaving Minnesota crystallizes for me the exceptional parts of that tradition and how that felt so functional in contrast to some of the things I saw in other states and the comparative studies of how different state systems evolved was really interesting. And this is fun because most people aren't interested in this stuff and most people wouldn't have the reference points, but um, your audience and you do, which is that at the time I interned for Senator Dayton and I went to I went to Washington, D.C., and I spent a term in his office with him, and it was a great experience. I was talking to his chief of staff at the end of my internship, and I was saying, you know, this is great. I really love this. I love Minnesota politics. How can I stay involved? I'm in, you know, I'm in New Hampshire. I'm out in Hanover. How can I stay involved in Minnesota politics? And he said, and this is a good bridge to uh, something else that we can talk about, but he said you should start a blog. Um, <laughs> she took his advice. <laughs> I took his advice. I mean, it was it was such a it was such a funny piece of advice, and it just hit it hit all of the notes for me because you know as we're picking these threads together, like I had built websites. I love building websites. It was still a hobby for me at that time, but I loved it. So like I I like it sounded so fun for me to get in. I like writing. I, I was really interested in staying connected. And so while I was in college, I did uh, start a website that was a blog. At the time, it was uh, Minnesota mnpublius.blogspot.com. And then we eventually bought the .com to just make it mnpublius. Um, but that was a really fun experience. Tell me why you, why you called it mnpublius. Uh, so super nerdy uh, government major reference. The... The authors of the Federalist Papers, when they were published, Alexander Hamilton, who wrote the most of them, um, John Jay and James Madison, uh, they published them under the pseudonym Publius. Uh, so they did not individually uh, sign the papers. Uh, they signed them all from Publius. I used uh, Publius as a reference to uh, actually a uh, Roman citizen, but I used Publius and frame this as Minnesota Publius. And at the time, there was this website called Minnesota Democrats Exposed. Oh, I remember that, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And who we now know to be Michael Broadcorb, um, who actually I know personally and um, interesting guy. I, I actually uh, have to profess I like him a great deal. Um, he's, a, he's, a, he's an interesting guy. But at the time, he was publishing that completely anonymously. And so I thought, Hey, you know, it'd be like, I want this to be a little bit more highbrow. I, like I want to, I want to engage on policy. I don't want to just take people down. Um, but I, I do want to write this anonymously because I don't know where it's going to go. And, you know, Michael had kind of carved the course for the right leaning side of it being anonymous. And so I thought, oh, what a, what a clever reference, Matt. <laughs> you know, like that was really, <laughs> it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to use the pseudonym that they published the Federalist Papers of, but it's going to be Minnesota. Well, this is a great piece of information. I, I have to be honest and say I did not learn that from listening to Hamilton many, many, many times as a musical. <laughs> but I did know that Hamilton wrote most of the Federalist Papers, so at least there's that. What do you think you were trying to accomplish? And, and you started this in around 2005. It lasted through the Great Recession and Obama's first term. You, you've, you faced a great deal of challenges. I mean, it, it ran for 
How long? How long did it last? And what were you trying to accomplish through these years? Yeah, so I was super actively involved uh, from 2005 to about 2010. Um, and... And by super actively, I mean, for a period, I was the sole writer, and then I was um, kind of the the person who was managing it a little bit, and then writing among several other people. Uh, and then when I went to law school, and, and I'll come back a little bit to, you know, why and, and what changed over that time period, but just getting to the chronology of it. Uh, when I went to law school, I wanted to break from it. Like, I, I felt like a new chapter in my life, and I didn't want to carry it forward myself. And so some other folks... Uh, picked up the day-to-day writing, and I kind of stepped back involvement from 2009 or so. And then I think, I can't recall, honestly, when we finally shut the doors completely, but I wasn't involved at that point, and there just weren't writers left. And so I think that was probably around 2012, 2013 or so. And was it revenue neutral, or was it a money money hole, or like how did it fund itself? What what Was there even a business model around it if you were doing it for yourself at the beginning? Um, at the beginning, there was none at all. I was just doing it for myself. I was doing it for the the initial motivation behind it was really the the chief of staff in Mark Dane's office having inspired me to kind of um, this would be a good way to stay involved, and it was. It was great. I find that writing is so important for clarifying your thoughts, and also by writing, you engage yourself in the issue at a deeper level than just you know talking about it. It's mm-hmm. really easy to kind of you know have a back and forth about about it at a high level, but when you write, you kind of have to get into the nitty gritty of it. And so for me, initially, that's what it was, but then it started to get some traction. Um, it, it was a very small community at that time, and, and, and it still is really. I mean, when you think about a state legislature, uh, it's there's, there's not a lot of coverage of that, especially with the collapse of local news. Even more so today, there's not a lot of coverage of it. Um, and at the time, you know, I, I found I found pretty quickly I was getting an audience among kind of the the politicos inside Minnesota. Um, so not really at a national stage, but at a local stage. And that is like for a government major hold up in New Hampshire. I mean, it is just that is catnip. Of I mean, course. It, was just, it was so cool to be able to write something and see people who might be able to actually have an impact read it. Um, I just, just talk about it. Yeah, it was just, it was really, really interesting and how the web enables that in order to have that platform of your own creation. Um, Really interesting. But, but so uh, it started to gain more and more of a following. And we found that when it came around election cycles, we would just get a spike of traffic. And so the business model, we did find that we could eventually sell ads. It was never self-sustaining. I mean, it was literally like, uh, Zach Stevenson, who's now a state legislator uh, out of Coon Rapids, um, he's in the House um, and a wonderful person. Uh, he and I would write and we would get like pocket money. You know, I mean, it was, it was nothing. It was like maybe uh, Zach and I could like buy a round of beers, you know, um, but it was fun because like, we, you know, we were we were getting this audience and we could uh, talk to a lot of folks we were interested in talking to. Yeah. Yeah, and they're very different times than times right now. So I want to ask one more question here, um, and then we'll we'll move on, uh, because I have so much more to ask about. When you were doing this blog and uh, selling a few ads to buy yourself and your friends some beer, you had a certain 
you know, number of issues that you were dealing with, a very different ecosystem of blogs and news and local news in 2005 compared to right now. Like if you had started this blog today, those challenges would be very different. Would you be discouraged doing it? I still believe very strongly in the web as a platform. I, I think especially the open web, you know, being able to spin up a website and put words on a page that you can distribute to as many people as have internet connections is is truly an amazing thing. Um, and I, I, I feel really lucky that I was born in a time where I have access to that. Um, so I still have a lot of respect to that. I think one of the things that is tricky, and I don't know how I would react, to be honest. I'd like to think that I would be above it, but I was 20, 21, 22. I was still pretty immature. That feedback loop that I had at the time of writing something interesting and seeing people who can make an impact read it is a is is a positive form it had negative parts and i'm happy to talk about that it's a positive form of the same sort of feedback loop that can happen on facebook or twitter where you're trying to get an audience but the feedback loops now are incentivized pretty bad behavior um, and so to get above the din of the regular conversation, you're incentivized to take a more extreme stance, mm -hmm. you know, to, to break through, to aggravate people so that, um, it, you know, that you get a response to create conflict, um, in order to, uh, entice somebody who maybe has an elevated platform to pull you in. And there was a little bit of that at the time. I mean, I would, one of the ways that we built our audience was I would, I would go through the um, comments on other people's blogs that had a larger audience and I would comment. But it, you know, for me personally, it wasn't, you, sometimes it was about picking a fight and I want to embrace that. Like I, I did do that, but it was usually in the spirited way of like picking a political battle instead of a, a personal fight. Um, but I could easily see in this environment how that could take a very negative turn. I, I would like to think that I would resist that, but, you know, I don't know. Um, it, it's it's a different environment. Yeah, it's it's been sensationalized in this day and age, and I feel like the, the, the fights you would have picked would have been over ideas and over political constructs, and not, and I don't see you as going ad hominem, which, which I think is way too prevalent in our discourse today like if you don't agree with me then we just go ad hominem and like that basically shuts the whole conversation down and this is something that i look back on and i i'm proud of you know there was a little ecosystem of uh more liberal bloggers and uh, we had a pretty big audience in that crowd so i think that you know in some ways we were a leader in some ways we were kind of the young kids that were like oh these little guys, you know, why, how, why do they have more viewers? You know, I get together with them periodically and I liked a lot of those folks, but they viewed Michael Broadcorp as just the devil. And Michael was sensational. I mean, he picked a few battles that I think were a little bit beyond the pale, but I would also go out and grab beers with Michael because, you know, we were in the same field. He really loved politics. Um, we found the internet interesting. I disagreed with him on almost everything, but I like, you know, he's still, he's made um, some bad choices in his life, um, both inside and outside the blogosphere, but I consider him to be a, a good person at the core. And, uh, you know, it, I, I think I would have resisted the kind of sensationalized ad hominem attacks that you see now. Yeah. Um, but, but you never know. Those feedback loops are really strong. And 
it's really intoxicating, especially when you're young. Those endorphins are strong. They really are. So you spent college working on your government degree, and then you went to law school. And while you were in law school, I believe, is when you founded Inbode, which is how we met. What was Inbode, and why did you start another company? Look, there's the part of me, again, going back to where we started a little bit, is like that that long-term just love of learning. Like I just can't put my hands down. And so law school was very busy, and I, I enjoyed... Uh, for the same reasons that we talked about with the government degree, I really enjoyed kind of the historic intersection, historical intersection of how people organize themselves, which is really what the law is all about, and the and researching that and getting to know it, getting to understand it. Um, but I love creating, and my friend, my very close friend, who's still a close friend, um, his family is in kind of the mid market of um, apartment rental management. And it, there's very clearly a hole in the market between uh, tools that might help an individual kind of investment landlord or somebody who just has a couple of units and a really large scale institutional landlord, um, of which there are many in the country. And it just seemed like a, a really, after talking to a few people and doing some research, it feel like a really interesting space. Now, that's a little bit of... Um, hindsight 2020 on the problem, because I think that if we had articulated the problem that way, we would have ended up in a different space for myself and my friend at the time. Uh, and coming to you, Yvonne, you know, we were kids who were, you know, we were in our early 20s. What we experienced was how difficult it was to find an apartment. Mm -hmm. And so we were kind of trying to find this angle where, yes, we saw that enabling the mid-market rental owners would be a, a good business, we really wanted to solve the problem of how do I find an apartment? And I think there is an intersection there, but I think that it was too diffuse of a problem to address. It, it was a really interesting problem. I remember when I saw you guys and um, we talked about how you wanted to fix it, it made perfect sense that this would be something that would absolutely be a success in the market. Um, and, uh, it, yeah, it was, it was great to work with you then. Um, we sort of lost touch after that project and you ended up moving out to California and getting another job and working for a, a whole bunch of different companies, um, before starting yet another company. So, so tell me about why you moved out to California, um, and what led you to starting clockwise. Hey, I hesitate a little bit because there are multiple reasons that we moved out to California and, you know, the, the story that I'd like to tell you is that, um, you know, I was inspired that I really wanted to get back into software. And that is true. But the, <laughs> the <Okay. laughs> but the, the, this is a legal term, the, but for reason, and, and it, it means like, but for this, we would not have moved to California is that, um, my wife was finishing up, finishing up medical school and, she was looking at matching and the match process is really interesting. Uh, you, you kind of, you rank where you want to go and then you just get matched and you go. And if you don't go, you basically have to take a year off. And so it's kind of this weird national matching system. And, uh, she was debating whether or not to rank university of Minnesota one or to rank children's hospital, Oakland, number one. And I, didn't love being a lawyer. I, I did like it. Um, and we could talk about that. It was, it wasn't it, it, but it wasn't my life's calling and that was clear. And I really loved my time that I spent with you and Charlie on in Bode. And I wanted to get back to creating. And so when the opportunity presented for Ashley to just 
nudge that match ever so slightly to put Children's Hospital Oakland number one and uh, the University of Minnesota Children's System number two and roll the dice to see if maybe she gets her number one pick. Uh, I wanted to jump on that, and she felt comfortable doing that too, and she, she matched here, and we moved. Wow. That serendipity is what it is. Kind of a little bit of influence from, you know, the things you can control, the, the levers you can't control, and and out you went to Oakland. That's right. And uh, the the interesting the interesting thing about that serendipity is that it, it could have easily been Minnesota. I could easily be still an attorney at a large law firm. Um, at now, I think Fagery Drinker Biddle is <laughs> the name has changed yeah. several times with all the movies. <laughs> Yeah, we, we moved out to California and uh, it was an opportunity for me to make a clean cut with law um, there. You know, I could I could just move. I had a clear reason for leaving. I had a clear reason for changing careers. And I did. One of the things that came out of Inbode was I did have some not incredibly deep, but I had some domain knowledge in the apartment rental space. Mm-hmm. And so I went out to California and I there's this company called uh, Lovely. Um, it was at LiveLovely.com. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but they were doing this kind of a better version of what InBode hoped to be. It was a great portal for searching for uh, apartments. And the big innovation at the time, which is what Charlie and I wanted to do with InBode, if you remember, Yvonne, is like at that point, and this might be crazy to for some of the audience, nobody put the listings on a map. Right. That was like the, that was the. That was the feature that was in Bode, right? Yes, like, that's apartment right. Apartment search using a map. That's right. And like, it sounds so basic, but it was like, nobody put it on a map. And in fact, it wouldn't be years until Craigslist had a map view. Uh, that's what Lovely did. They put it on a map. Um, they took a different approach than we were taking at in Bode, but they had some venture capital funding and I kind of convinced them to take me on, talked my way into position there and was off to the races. I mean, it was, <laughs> looking back, it was... <laughs> Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know how they took the risk on me, but, uh, they saw something they liked. And so they brought me in and I, I got to do a little bit of business development, a little bit of product development, and then more and more software engineering, uh, and bounced around a few different startups, building up my software engineering credentials. So there's an interesting perspective here because you talk about how you don't know what they saw in you, right? And you talked your way into it and they let you do some business development, but you're a CEO of a startup company now that's gone through $18 million of Series B funding, right? You're on the other end of that of that coin now. Yeah. So I'm sure you can look, think back from the perspective of the CEO who was hiring you or the business manager that was hiring you and think about, oh, this guy's got so much potential. We totally need someone who can figure things out, right? Yeah, you know, that's absolutely well stated. Uh, There's a lot of imposter syndrome. And I think in general, and in our industry specifically, and definitely in me, where I feel like I I have gotten lucky to have the opportunities that I've had. And I look back on them um, with a great deal of respect and admiration for the people who took some risks on me. Um, But yes, I am in a position now where, you know, you look at that decision, and it does seem um, it seems rational, you know, I mean, here's somebody who's hungry, here's somebody who has an interest in the space, here's somebody who can problem solve, who's tried it before. We don't know quite what to do with them, but let's give them a spin. And we do that at Clockwise as well. I love just whenever I have a platform of just talking about the transition from, 
you know, for those out there who really find software engineering interesting, but don't have a traditional degree, um, that was a really tough transition for me. And I, I have a lot of respect for the folks who do that. And I, I, you know, I want people to know that there's a path, but it's, it, it is hard and it takes some perseverance. After that, uh, apartment, uh, rental site, I, I went to a legal startup. Another person took a chance on me. But there's this difference that happened, Avon, where, you know, when I was starting out in the Bay Area, I looked like this kind of weirdo, like lawyer who, you know, was really interested, high potential, you know, would hustle, would take any offer they could find. Um, but like you could kind of look at my resume and you knew that you were taking a bet on me versus when I got out the other side of the legal startup, I I was a software engineer, like I was a front end software engineer, but I had no traditional training. I didn't have a CS degree. And so I got evaluated as a software engineer. And that transition was really difficult. I almost went back to law uh, because I kept on striking out. First, it was hard to get people to take my resume up at all because I didn't have a traditional CS degree. It was hard for me to show that I had potential as a software engineer. And then it, you'd hit the traditional software engineering interview process. And I'm not trained in algorithms, you know? <laughs> like, I, I, you know, I, I, I taught myself JavaScript through jQuery and, you know, reverse engineering the DOM. So I would just fail a lot of those interviews. And the thing that I would isolate for those who are kind of in this process and searching for themselves is once you get your foot in the door somewhere, that's the toughest thing. Like, you know, I got a job at this company called Relate IQ. They took a risk on me and then I was off to the races because now I'm a software engineer. And so perseverance, trying to find that first job through your network, trying to focus in on places that you really like and just beat down the door. I found that a, a good way was, you know, maybe trying to de-risk yourself for the company by saying, hey, you know, let me contract. Let me let me work on a project with you before you take me on full time. You know, I encourage those who really do want to get into software engineering. It's a great, it's a great career. It's, I, I love software engineering. You get paid to problem solve and to troubleshoot on your own time with a keyboard. It's, it's great. Just grit, perseverance. It took me a while and it was really hard to break through. And it, I, I almost got lost in the wilderness and I was lucky to come out the other side with a career I'm really proud of. Um, but it is tough. I, I wholeheartedly agree with the way you describe de-risking yourself for others. And that's uh, that's sort of what the process is to kind of engage with 10.7. If we're going to hire someone, we have a contract to hire model. And we, you know, we want to contract with you so that you know it's not what it's like to work with us, but also so we know what it's like to work with you. And when we do that on real projects, you know, a little bit at a time, we can either scale up or scale down depending on how it's working out. And so that's attractive to me as an owner and as a company leader. And so I think that's a that's a good piece of advice. And and I would also say that for uh, people who find companies like 10.7 and leaders like yourself, Yvonne, if you see that contract to hire, I would jump on it. Because what that represents is that somebody's willing to take the time to engage with understanding your skill set and it's it's actually quite valuable from the other perspective from the from the employee as well because you might think okay I'm on a contract there's still a lot of risk here I'm not full time but there's a dual-sided investment there that I think is really great whereas if 
you know, if you manage to get a full-time position somewhere, a full-time software engineering position, that can be great. I'm not going to say don't go for that, but right. you can also get lost a little bit. Like you can get thrown into the thick of it and it, nobody's really checking in or taking the time to engage with you um, at, at companies that don't know how to do this well. And so those contract for higher positions, those are just wonderful opportunities for folks who are trying to break through. And, and perseverance as well. If you don't get that first contract to hire, keep doing it. Keep persevering to to you know follow the desire that you have and learn and and um, read and implement as much as you can. Okay, clockwise. Clockwise. <laughs> <laughs> so you relate IQ, I think, is what you said. Um, and then you were at another company before clockwise. And so um, tell me about that nugget. Tell me what. What got you to start thinking about a new company? So uh, a couple of things. Uh, the, the company that I was at was acquired by Salesforce. And um, I actually kind of worked my way up to engineering management and then managing managers. Another thing that I would note uh, related to our last topic is that it, once, once you do break through, you'll find that um, your ceiling is higher because you have a diverse set of experiences. And so... I found that, you know, entering a company, my weird past experience as an attorney and having formal training and having managed people before was a real asset. Um, so I ended up in uh, software engineering management and two insights here, uh, or two observations rather, Yvonne. And, and one of them I think is relatively unique and the other is not unique. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the first the first kind of non-unique, non-insightful one is like, is just inside of a modern organization like Salesforce, it is so damn difficult to get time for your priorities. You just play kind of whack-a-mole with your schedule. People are trying to get you get time with you all the time. It's hard to time find to be proactive. It's hard to time find time to sit down with somebody on a code review or you know think about next quarter strategy. The schedule really kind of conspires against you. You have to take active steps to make that time for yourself. And I'm a nerd on this stuff. I'm a nerd in a lot of ways, but on, <laughs> on productivity, <laughs> I would try to, you know, coach people up on time blocking and, and um, you know, different processes for making sure that you're blocking off time and you're auditing your calendar to make sure that you get time for those priorities that you want to set aside. And those are great. Those are important. Personal discipline, getting a process that works for you. I would counsel anybody to do that. But as personal as time is, when you're inside a large organization or even a medium-sized organization these days, you hit the wall of the organization schedule. Uh, mm. You could be the you could be a master at getting things done. Like you could have a black belt in time blocking. And when your boss's boss schedules a 3 p.m. meeting with you, you're gonna go. You know, <laughs> like it doesn't right. matter. There's no choice. You just there's no it. choice. Yeah, and so. The cadence of the organization around you, the PMs that are taking time from you, the other folks that you're trying to collaborate with, the flow of Slack messages, the flow of Jira tickets, all of this stuff comes together and creates an environment where what I found, and this is the second insight, is time has really become a shared asset. You know, as personal as it is, it is something that we are collaborating on. It is the core building block of how we orient ourselves inside of companies is having a shared asset of this is the time we have together and we're not treating it like a shared asset. And what happens here, and this goes a little bit back to my government training, is it um, looks like a classic, both a public policy and an econ concept of a tragedy of the commons. And a tragedy of the commons is a 
both a, a real observed phenomenon, but also kind of an economic uh, construct where, you know, back in the 1700s or 1800s, uh, you'd have a central commons in the center of town, and it was usually used for grazing before these were turned into parks. And it's a shared resource for the whole town. And if you don't regulate it, if you don't kind of state who gets to use it when, you end up grazing it all down to nothing. The tragedy of the commons is that when you have a shared resource that's highly valuable and it's not regulated, it tends up it ends up getting consumed by whoever can consume it fastest or whoever can run it down the quickest and the incentives are all off. And it's a classic scenario where you need regulation or government. Now, in an organization, time has become a tragedy of the commons. Everybody's taking from it because it's scarce. There are only so many hours in the day. You need to meet with folks to move your projects forward. You need time in order to get your job done. And everybody's vying for it, but there's no coordination and there's no regulation because we haven't embraced that as a shared asset. And so stating in a completely non-wonky way and more basic is if we want more time in our day for what matters, we have to coordinate better. And uh, inside of an office environment where you have tens, hundreds, thousands of people working together, that's a network problem. It's it's a network problem across those individuals. And, and for a network problem where you're trying to coordinate, software is a really good tool. So that's kind of, that is the, the inception of Clockwise. How do you make a business out of a Chrome extension? Because that's what the product is, right? Yeah. So it took us a while to distill that down. And you know, a couple of things here. So I'm a front-end engineer. I love building product. There's a part of me, Yvonne, that like it pains me in my heart that we're a Chrome extension. <laughs> like <laughs> I like being pushing ourselves into this sidebar alongside somebody else's screen real estate. Like ah, we we initially were thinking of being a calendar and that's all to say that that's all, that a that's not where clockwise starts but b it's also a hard one strategic uh choice which is clockwise is about building out that platform for coordination we need access to people's time inside the organization we need to we need to uh connect to calendars connect to slack eventually connect to asana or jira to understand what your priorities are, what the flow of your day is, to get you onboarded and understand how you want to manage your time. And it, it's so the platform is really what's essential. And we found that the lowest friction way and the fastest way to gain adoption is let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's not build a calendar because people have a calendar they're comfortable with. Let's just augment it. And the best way to augment it is with a Chrome extension. And that distribution methodology has really paid dividends because we don't have to we don't have to convince somebody to switch we just have to convince them to augment so what happens in terms of business model is uh we get really broad-based distribution clockwise um is is pretty viral uh it is pretty viral inside of an organization and we get a lot of users and we start to drive real productive time back to the calendar so we we make people's days better and it turns out when you make people's days better, they're willing to pay you. Um, and so we have a subscription model uh, that is per user per month. It's entirely a business tool. So this isn't something where we ask individuals or consumers to pay for this out of pocket. Um, the, the bill is usually footed by the team or the department or the organization as a whole. And uh, Clockwise is then um, implemented across the team or across the department, across the organization to help everybody coordinate better and ultimately get uh, get a better schedule. 
it sounds like uh, exactly what I need at 10.7. And I'm very excited to try it out in the next uh, couple weeks here. I know we are having a couple of little issues with it right now, but um, I'm looking forward to trying it out. The thing you are... The, the thing that really attracts me to this company and this product is the fact that it works best when you don't notice it. So, like, even even if it is a Chrome extension, that's okay. Like, if I am magically having my calendar rejuvenated and rearranged without me even knowing and everybody else is okay with it, and I'm getting valuable time back to my uh, to my own for my own needs, like the fact that it's not there, that's like magic, right? One hundred percent. And you know, there's an interesting there's an interesting yin and yang here. Uh, so, on the one side, that's exactly what we provide. So, our setup is relatively extensive because we want to get you set up correctly and get you set up right. Um, completion of our onboarding is really high and it's surprising because our onboarding, and I'll own this, is, is relatively long. Um, we have a lot of tools that we can get you up, up and running with. But once you're up and running, you get the recurring benefit day after day without really having to monkey with much. Um, you can come in and you can dial things in or you can change it, but you, you just we just help you out in the background which is magical. And that's the experience that our customers love. And that's the experience that ultimately that they're paying for. How long has Clockwise been around? I feel like I, you know, feels like you've been missing from my life for too long. <laughs> we have been around. So the company was founded uh, right around the beginning of the, of 2017. Um, so going on about four years here. And the, but we have only been publicly launched for about a year and a half. I like to remind folks when they join Clockwise of this, which is that we're in the business of category creation, for better or worse. And it, there's a lot of better in this, but there is some worse. Uh, category creation is really, really difficult. The, the upside of it is that you it's really exciting. We get to create something new that people haven't seen before. Uh, we get to imagine things from the purest of first principles. We get to create in the kind of the truest sense of that word. The downside of it is that uh, it's we we can't look over someone's shoulders. So Relate IQ, one of my past companies, we were building um, a CRM, a more intelligent customer relationship management pro, uh, piece of software. And so, you know, anytime that we had a question about business model or about feature set or about functionality or even about UI, we go we could kind of go peek over the shoulder of Salesforce, like, okay, what are they doing? Or we could look over at one of our competitors' base and like, whoa, what are they doing? With Clockwise, we really don't have any direct competitors. And then on the business model side, and this is a really tough one, this is really tough about category creation, is that we're not a line of replacement spend. There is no existing budget on somebody's spreadsheet inside of a large organization that says, time optimization software, X thousand dollars a month. And so we have to go in and we have to make the business case and we have to carve out budget for ourselves and we have to translate that that into ROI for the business. You know, it's fun to be a trailblazer and I wouldn't have it any other way. I find it so exciting and the team is remarkable. Um, it's, it's, it's just, it is really fun. It's really hard, but it's really, really rewarding. But I, but I do have to emphasize the, the difficulty of it. And so it takes some time. So what do you attribute the incredible growth that you've had 
I read that you do no sales and no marketing. Yeah, well, that's changing a little bit because we're seeing the growth uh, from the early stage be so uh, so attractive that we're building out a little bit more of a marketing muscle. Um, although that marketing muscle is really oriented towards a product-led growth uh, model. Um, so there's kind of a new world of you know the slacks, the notions, the air tables of the world where your marketing is less about having a billboard and it's more about understanding the journey of your user and make sure that you're staying in touch with them at the right time. And then on sales side, we're just building out our sales team. So for those of you interested in joining <laughs> a, uh, a very, uh, very compelling company, um, we are expanding our sales team as well because we turned on those uh, revenue levers. But, but in terms of the growth, um, it comes back again to those strategic decisions around what's essential here. And one of the things that's essential for Clockwise is not that we own the whole UI, not that we're the complete calendar, but one of the things that is essential is that we build trust. Because we're going to move your meetings, which is crazy. Uh, you know, totally like, crazy. Yes. <laughs> totally crazy. Um, and so we need to build out the trust that uh, you understand how the system works. And what that means for us is that we have to go person by person. And if you go person by person, if you're not hiding behind a sales team that pushes it top down, or if you're not looking at a centralized administrator to roll it out, you've got to really stay close to the user. And you've got to really make it something interesting that they're excited about using. And it turns out if you do that, uh, people like to spread it, people like to evangelize it. And lastly, it of course doesn't hurt that, um, you know, going back to kind of the core thesis around Clockwise and why we started it, calendars are networked, Clockwise exists on that network. And so you can spread on that network as well, which has really been um, essential to our growth. Let me see if I can give a very short explanation of what I think Clockwise does so that our listeners can um, understand, and then you tell me if I got it right or not. All right, I love this. Great. You built this piece of software, and you started a company to do it. This piece of software connects to your calendar. You're using Google Suite. It connects to your Google Calendar, and it gets used internally with the team or the whole company where you're at. You tell the software which meetings are important to you when you like when you would like to have focus time which meetings could be moved and presumably other people in your organization and on your team do the same thing and then you trust the software clockwise to just go back in the background and actually move meetings around so that you get larger swaths of time to yourself for focused thinking or for strategy work or for doing the work instead of being in the meetings. How's that? That is dead on, nicely done. We're going to hire you for our, our marketing team to make sure that you have the introduction. <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing. Okay, good. I love this idea. Tell me about the expansion. What happens once internal companies or companies can fix their meetings internally? Do you start leveraging that network effect and go outside of your company with other companies or maybe with other software uh, platforms like the Microsoft Office platform? So stated otherwise, Yvonne, you know, kind of synthesizing what Clockwise is, it's a smart calendar assistant that frees up your time so you can focus on what matters. And so we, exactly how Yvonne stated, we open up focus time for you through moving meetings to better times. And you get a lot of controls over what we move, when we move, uh, but we can help to do that across the organization. That gets better as more people inside our company use it. 
it's great. If you're a single person and you come into this, nobody else in your company is using it, you're gonna get a lot of value out of Clockwise. Um, we have a lot of features that are great for just a single user, whether that's personal calendar sync, where you can pull in your personal calendar, your work calendar, completely private, completely uh, obfuscated from your uh, colleagues, but still allowing you to share that. You use Slack sync, but the real core of it, that coordination, it gets better as more people join. And so that tends to push it throughout the organization. Now, when you hit the walls of the organization, you're right, Yvonne, like there's not a natural product way for Clockwise to spread right now. And so the way it spreads between companies is one really fun one is um, if somebody changes jobs, they tend to bring Clockwise with them. Mm. Uh, word of mouth on uh, on Twitter, um, we have a lot of, a lot of user love. Um, we also are present on a lot of channels like on Product Hunt, and so areas that people are shopping for software. And it, uh, just kind of word of mouth throughout uh, the ecosystem of friends talking to friends about solutions. That is where marketing needs to play a little bit more of a role for us is getting out the word about Clockwise so that we can make those hops from company to company. And on the product development side, you're absolutely right. I mean, it. It. it speaking of uh, things that that pain my heart. Um, <laughs> the number of users that come to our homepage really want to use Clockwise, are excited about the premise, and can't because they're on Office 365 uh, or they're using Outlook. Um, we will correct that. And uh, for those users out there on Microsoft platforms, stay tuned. We'll have something very exciting for you within the next year. That's awesome. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I have so many other questions. We have run out of time. Will you come back so we can talk some more? I'd love to. This was really, really fun. I'm always excited to talk about technology, software, clockwise, but especially when those things intersect with Minnesota, that is just <laughs> wonderful. That's awesome. I'm glad to be talking about it as well with you. Um, it's been so awesome spending time with you, talking about your history, how you started clockwise, all the things that you've done before that, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Great pleasure talking to you. Great. So, so fun to be here, and thank you for the time, um, and thank you for the platform. Matt Martin is co-founder and CEO of Clockwise, and you can find them online at getclockwise.com. You've been listening to the 10.7 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thanks for listening.